Hello and welcome. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Pastor Leonard Tolhurst. Leonard did pastoral work in New Zealand and served as a missionary in India, Fiji, Papua New Guinea and Hong Kong. For almost 30 years he taught theology in four colleges and was head of the theology department in three of them. He has some amazing stories to tell and my conversation with Len will extend over two hours. Welcome, Len. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning, Barry. How are you? I'm very well, actually. Beautiful day. I look forward to our conversation today. Thank you. When you were in Fiji, you had an amazing experience. Tell me the story. I was called to go to Fiji and uh, chair the theology department of our Adventist college, Fulton College in Fiji, in um, early 1981 and um, while there I was invited to go to an island called Vanumbalavu, way out in the Lao group, eastern side of Fiji with another pastor and we ran some meetings there and I so enjoyed my visit out there that I said to my wife when we get to the end of the school year and have our holidays I want to take you out there too so we flew out there when our holidays came. And being a, an interested, uh, interested in shell collecting, I wanted to go and look for some seashells in uh, different parts of the area. And so I arranged with uh, some Fijians that had a, a small boat, a little launch, outboard motor, to go to a sandbar, which is way out in the ocean, um, outside a, a coral reef that surrounded the island that I was on and out into the open ocean, this little sandbar was at the end of a long underwater reef out in the ocean. And um, as we were heading towards it, one of the Fijians said to me, I think there's somebody on the island. I said, what makes you think that? Oh, he said, I don't know, I just feel it. Well, the, nobody lives on the island. The little sandbar was only about 100 metres across in diameter and uh, v no trees on it virtually, just a few scrubs and mostly sand. But a lot of seabirds nested there. And one of my former students, had a, who was a, a, an ornithologist, has a PhD degree in study of birds, uh, had been ringing chicks, chickens, in their nests on that sandbar some years before. And he said to me, if ever you get there, find any dead birds with rings on their legs, get the numbers, the serial numbers, and let me know what they are because they're all recorded at the CSIRO down in Canberra, all the numbers that he ringed. And so uh, that's one reason why I went out to the sandbar. But this comment that there was somebody on the island, I said, who might they be? Oh, he said, I don't know. Maybe they're Korean or Malaysian fishermen or something uh, looking for tuna, fishing illegally in Fijian waters. I said, oh, well, if we find somebody there, shall we arrest them? And he said to me, well, maybe we can arrest them. Maybe they will arrest us. <laughs> so uh, anyway, as I was watching, we came over up on a wave and then I saw the sandbar for the first time. We had crossed over the reef and we were out in the open ocean and we saw the reef. And as we um, uh, getting closer, I saw all these birds take off together. Now, I'm a bird watcher, 
And uh, I know that when all birds in the rookery take off together, something has disturbed them, maybe a person or a dog, because there's nobody living there and no dogs on the island either. <clears throat> what had disturbed them? A little later on, we saw a black object, looked like a big rock on the northern end of the sandbar. And uh, the folk that were looking at that, and I said, what is it? I said, it looks like a rock to me. And the Fijians who know the island well, know the sandbar well because it's part of their territory, they said, there's no rocks on that island. And then almost immediately we saw the figure of a human being walking on the north end of the sandbar. That confirmed that somebody was there. As we approached the sandbar, two people jumped out from behind this uh, black object. We couldn't see them until they came out into the clear and began waving uh, some article of clothing, a shirt or something, at us. And when we waved back, a woman and uh, turned out to be her stepson, about 17-year-old stepson, they threw their arms around each other. And I said to the Fijians, these people are in danger. They are trapped here, apparently. They are rejoicing because we're coming. Well, as we approached the um, sand or the beach, a Fijian jumped ashore. I was the second one to get onto the beach. The boy came running down to the Fijian and the woman came running there to me with her arms stretched out in front of her like that. Well, I tell you, I'm not used to that. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had that experience. <laughs> and I thought she was going to embrace me too. So I put my hands out like that to brace her, to keep her at, a, at an arm's length. And she grabbed me by the elbows on each arm. And her first words were, thank God you've come. Thank God you've come. We've been praying for somebody to rescue us. We are Jehovah's Witness family, and we have been praying for God to rescue us. I said, well, I think God must have sent us here to rescue you because I very nearly went to another place this morning, but I decided at the last minute sort of thing to come here. So maybe God's impressed me to come here because you needed help, and here I am. Well, she said, what brings you out here? I said, well, I came out here to look for shells. The Fijians have come out here to do some spearfishing. So um, she said, well, don't let, me, don't let us uh, spoil your, your holiday, your outing. Uh, my husband's up there in the shelter of the, turned out to be a rubber a dinghy, uh, inflatable rubber dinghy, uh, propped up with one oar. They had lost the previous, the other oar, only had one oar left. And make a bit of shade for him, she said. He's so weak and feeble he can hardly stand up. She said, we've been drifting across the Pacific Ocean for three weeks. She said, we, we hit a reef in the middle of the night. Uh, my, my husband and my stepson were asleep, and I was on a watch, lying on the bunk, reading a book. And every half hour or so, she would have to get up, go up on deck, because they had automatic rudder setting on the yacht, like that was sail at night, just to look around the horizon to make sure there was no visible land around that they might run into, or rough water, which would indicate shallow water, like a coral reef underneath, or to see any boat might be in the area with uh, lights on, just to make sure that they safe every half hour. So she went back to bed, lay down, reading a book, and the wave was, boat was going up and down on the, on the swell, and she went up on one swell and came down on, boom, on the rock, bang. 
knocked a hole about uh, 18 or more inches in diameter in the hull of the boat and the water started pouring in. The impact woke the, 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 her husband and stepson up and they realised that they were in trouble. The boy grabbed on an anchor, dived into the water, swam out from the boat to try and ho hook the anchor into the coral on the shallow reef, but it wouldn't hold because the wave action on the reef, had, it was just smooth rock virtually, not much coral there to hook into. And every wave that hit the boat moved it a little bit further, a little bit further across the reef. And on the other side, they could see calm water, and they knew that was deep water. And they knew that if the boat got there and sank, they would be in trouble. When they saw that the, how big the hole, hole, the hole in the hull was, they realized that the boat was going to go down. So they quickly grabbed a pillowcase, ran through the yacht, grabbed tins of food, can opener, a can of water, their passports, and threw everything into the pillowcase, got their two uh, shore boats that they have, the rubber dinghy and a fiberglass uh, boat about six or eight feet long, and um, tied them together with a rope. They had a windsurfer board on board, so they grabbed that, put it on the one of the dinghies, and used the sail, got into the boats just in time because they pulled away from the boats and the yacht went down into the deep water on the other side of the reef. Middle of the night, they set up the sail and started to head west. They didn't want to go too far south. They actually were heading to New Zealand from Long Beach in California. And they had been through Tahiti and the Cook Islands and now they were heading for New Zealand when they hit this reef. And um, they set sail and started sailing across the Pacific towards uh, Tonga. But they didn't see Tonga. They must have gone between the gap between Hapai and Vavau two of the northern smaller groups of the Tongan Islands. Never saw any land until they came into the eastern area of Fiji. And they got under this sandbar uh, and were planning to leave when the tide came in that day, when we arrived. We gave them water to drink, some food to eat, because they had lost their drinking water some days before. Um, a wave swamped their boat and... Uh, the water can floated away and the, the woman, Margaret, dived to grab the, the, the can, nearly empty, but it floated, uh, to save what little fresh water they still had. But they, she couldn't get it. She fell in. And of course, the sail was up and the yachts, the, the two dinghies rather, uh, sailed away from her, left her behind. The boy quickly um, and, the, and the, his father quickly took down the, uh, the sail uh, untied the uh, surfboard, uh, windsurfer board, threw it into the sea. He dived in, the boy dived in, climbed onto it and paddled back by hand to get his stepmother. And the father took down the... Uh, her, uh, well, they had already taken down the sail, but the, the boat was being blown by the wind, drifting away from them faster than they could paddle back to the boat. And they got so far apart, they're losing sight of each other as they went up and down in the swell. They lose sight of each other. But the, the man, Robert, Robert Aris, his name, quickly, deliberately swamped the boats, tipped them over and filled them with water so that the wind wouldn't blow them so fast. And the two managed to paddle back, climb back in, uh, bailed out the water, set up the sail and got going again. That was just one of the terrifying experiences that they had. 
He told me one of the most terrifying experiences was to be capsized by a big wave in the middle of the night. And they would come up out of the water and they couldn't see anything, couldn't see the boats, the dinghies. They'd call out to each other, where are you? I'm over here. I'm over here. Where are the dinghies? Oh, I've got the dinghy here. Come swim this way. And they'd swim in the direction of the person that had found a boat, found a dinghy, climb back in, bail out the water, set up sail and get going again. This is the way there was several times they were capsized, like the daytime and night. The swell was, he said, so big at times it looked like a three-story high building coming at them, you know, 30, 40-foot swells, and, uh, until they got onto this sandbar. Well, we took them back to the island where my wife was waiting. Uh, she knew nothing about this, of course, but uh, she was surprised to find me back so soon because she didn't expect me back at, uh, at midday. I thought I'd be back in the evening. So we radioed the police uh, in um, Suva, 160 or so miles away, and uh, told them that we had found these three Americans. They um, radioed uh, or telephoned to the family numbers, that we phone numbers we gave them, and uh, notified the family that they had been found. We, we discovered later that the family in America knew they were overdue to arrive in New Zealand and had alerted the New Zealand uh, search and rescue people. And they had sent out an Air Force Orion plane to search for them. But knowing that they were heading for New Zealand, they searched between New Zealand and the Cook Islands, whereas they had sailed to the west and got out of the search area. If the plane had gone another 150 miles further north, may have found them, but we found them instead. It was an exciting experience. They were air airlifted by helicopter back to Suva, they were skin and bone, covered in ulcers. You needed a peg on your nose because of the putrefying sores that covered their arms and legs and bodies. And um, the man had big carbuncles on his elbows, and the doctor who treated them in Suva told me later that uh, he could not lance them to let the pus out because the, the, he was so dehydrated, the circulation was so poor that they wouldn't have healed and they would have turned to gangrenous and he would have lost his arm. So he just had to give him antibiotics and wait for them to do their work slowly. But they recovered from hospital. And this year, also I should say now last year, 2013, I was in Southern California where they live and we had a reunion 32 years after I rescued them with the help of the Fijians. Interesting story. But God answered their prayers and I'm thankful that we had a small part to play in their rescue. How far had they traveled? They had traveled all the way from Long Beach down to Marquesas Islands and down to uh, Tahiti and around uh, the French Polynesian Islands and then to the Cook Islands. And they were about a day, a day and a half or more uh, west of the, or southwest of the Cook Islands when they hit this reef. So in terms of the amount of time they had in the, in the water and the distance they traveled? How, how long? Well, they were three weeks drifting three weeks, in the, in three the dinghies. Weeks yes. Three weeks drifting in the dinghies. They caught a, a, a seabird landed on their dinghy and they managed to grab it and uh, pluck its feathers out and eat raw flesh. But um, uh, they um, otherwise ran out of, uh, virtually ran out of food. They certainly were out of water for the last three days or so and were terribly dehydrated. In fact, the doctor who treated them in Suva told me that the, the, the father, Robert, would have died in 48 hours if they had not been found. They were going to push off from the sandbar 
when the tide came in about noon, but we got there just before they did and were able to save them. If they had launched themselves out and we had missed them, they probably would have capsized trying to get over the reef that surrounded the islands that uh, I would that I had gone to and probably would have drowned in the surf and the reef. It sounds like a divinely appointed meeting that you had with these people. And I have cert- no doubt about it. And you can certainly understand why the lady was running down the beach towards yeah. you <laughs> at that point. That's right. The um, I, I visited them, I think, three, uh, three or four times I've visited them in California since they were rescued. The more, most recent time was the one back in September of 2013, 32 years after their rescue. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story, isn't it? We've become good friends for the rest of our lives. They said they will never forget me. (laughs) I'm sure they won't. Did you get any shells that day? No. They said, you go and collect your shells and let the men do their fishing and you take us in tonight when you go in. And I thought to myself when I saw their condition, if we do that and a matter of three or four or five hours delay in getting them the help they needed, they should perish I would never forgive myself the rest of my life. So I said, no. I said, we're going to take you straight back. So I said to the Fijians, load them in the boat, we're going straight back. And that's what happened. Where did the interest in shell collecting come from? My father had a shell collection when I was a boy because I was was born in Tonga, another Pacific Island group. And um, he had a shell collection, so when I was living in Fiji, I started my own shell collection. I've got 57 different kinds of cowries, uh, no, 90, 95 different kinds of cowries and 57 different kinds of cone shells, plus a whole lot of other stuff. Do you still collect? Well, I haven't been doing any collecting of, of late, but um, I've got a nice cabinet of shells in my lounge. Tell me about the interest in bird watching. Well, I mean, uh, my father taught us to love things of nature when I was a boy, and uh, I took it up about 1950 when I moved from New Zealand to Australia to study. And uh, I've seen, uh, I think it's about 2,600 different species and some species of birds around the world. I've got a big library of bird books from countries around the world that I've been in. I've been in... 71 countries now, and uh, bird watched in many of them. Are you an expert at bird calls? I mimic a few, but uh, I'm not as good as George Southwell was. <laughs> he's deceased now, but he's the champion as far as I'm concerned. He can imitate almost anything. Tell me a bit more about your work in Fiji. In Fiji, I was the chairman of the theology department of the Seventh Adventist College in Fiji, known as Fulton College. Uh, I chaired the department. I had a, other theology lecturers in my department and I supervised their work and promote the work and arrange for the activity, field activity for the students. Now, you went to um, work in India for five and a half years. When was that? That was my first appointment. After I completed my studies and got my master's degree in theology in the United States, I went to uh, India with my wife we were there for five and a half years. Um, our three children, one boy and two girls, were all born while we were in India, uh, although they all have Australian passports because of my ancestry. <laughs> uh, my parents were both born in Australia. My wife was born in New Zealand, but the passport office gives the passports according to the father. <laughs> 
in most cases at least. And uh, they have Australian passports now, but they were all born in India. What part of India did you work in? We were up in the Northwest Union, uh, we call it, of India. Uh, head office was in New Delhi. So I was in and out of New Delhi quite uh, a lot. And you were principal of a school there, I understand. Yes, for two and a half years I was principal of a boarding school. We had grades 1 to 12, most of them in boarding department. The very young ones were day students, but most of them in boarding students. How did you come to go to India? I think there was some understanding that you might have been yeah. destined to go to Africa. Well, my wife was a, was a nurse, and uh, she trained in the Sydney Adventist Hospital in Sydney, in Australia. And uh, in the time when, uh, before I met her, she had been called to go to uh, um, Kenya, I think it was, Kendu Hospital in Kenya, in Africa, East Africa. But there was a mix-up with the, uh, the calling. Uh, another girl was called to go with her. Two girls were called at the same time. The other girl refused the call, but my wife didn't. But the administrators got their wires crossed and thought that my wife had refused the call, and so they never called her. Otherwise, I probably would never have met her or married her. <laughs> so maybe there was some providence in that too. <laughs> but um, she... Um, when they found out they'd made that mistake, they then called her to go to Johannesburg. And by this time, I was in the picture, and I was studying in the, the States. I called for her to come to get married over in Canada because, for a start, she could not get a visa going to the States until after we were married. So we got married in Canada, and then about three months later, she was granted a visa to join me. So right after our marriage, we lived in different countries for about three months. Tell me a bit more about your work in India. Uh, in India, I was called there to do uh, pastoral and evangelistic work because I trained as a pastor. Even though I was also a trained uh, school teacher, I did qualification and training in both. Uh, that's why I got the job at the Ruki School in India. <laughs> but um, I, um, uh, I went to language school, first of all, to study Hindustani, read and write the Devanagari script, and learn to conversation speaking and um, so after a, a period of time in evangelistic work I was called into the school work for two and a half years and then I went back for the final year I was there into public evangelism and ran a public program in the city of Indore I-N-D-O-R-E it's about halfway roughly between New Delhi and Bombay uh, and um, we spent a year there running those meetings what was your experience of India? This, I imagine, would have been back in the late 1950s. And we arrived in India in 1956 and left in 1961. We were there for five and a half years in all. Yes. How did you find India? What was it like working there? I got so used to living there that I was afraid that I'd have trouble readjusting living in a Western country again when I what did you left. like? What did you like about India? Oh, I liked a lot of things about India. But what I didn't like was to see the abject poverty of so many people. Uh, in Bombay, you'll see people just living on the sidewalks, the footpaths of the city. They eat there, they sleep there, they do the toilet there, they wash themselves there. They Babies are born there, right on the footpath. Thousands of them. They have no home. Public works have um, big concrete pipes they're going to put underground and while they're sitting on the ground before they put underground people crawl into them 
get out of the rain. Tell me your favourite story about India. I'm sure you've got some stories. <laughs> uh, probably our, fa- our favourite story that my wife and I had, we were working in the city of Jabalpur, in the state of Madhya Pradesh. We had a, a young Christian boy to help with the housework. Uh, for us living in India, you need to have house help because you buy rice, you've got to virtually put it on the table and go through and take all the stones and things out of it, and especially lentils. You know, otherwise, you might break your molar on a stone when you have a bite into your food. You've got to clean the food. There's so much work, extra work to be done in preparing your meals that you have to hire help because you don't have time to do it all yourself. So this boy got very uh, obstreperous and he became rude and began to give my wife cheek back, so I fired him. And we looked for a replacement and we asked where we were running meetings if there's anybody there that could uh, could uh, cook. And they recommended a, a young man to us, a young married man. Uh, he actually was a Tamil from South India. And um, his name, was, they called him was Thumbi, which in... And the Tamil language is little brother. It's a nickname they gave him, Tumbi. And so he came to work for us. He had been a bearer serving on tables in the British officers' mess in the British Army in the days of the British rule in India. He could speak some English, which was an asset because our Hindustani was quite limited. And... Uh, one day, I, he was, uh, I said to him before he worked for us, I said, do you smoke? He said, yes. I said, well, we don't smoke and we don't like the smoke. So if you work for us, you don't smoke in the house. You want to smoke, you go outside, have your little smoke, uh, smoke a break, if you call it, and then you come back and do your work. But no smoking inside the house. So he used to go out and do that. One day, I said to my wife, how can we influence this man? Uh, fine man? As a Hindu, his family, whole family were Hindus. I said, uh, well, let me get, uh, ask him if he'd like to do a Bible correspondence course. And so I got an enrollment card. <clears throat> and I said to him, Thumbi, would you like to do a Bible correspondence course? Um, this will help you to understand what we believe. And then you'll understand better why we live the way we live. And you'll understand us better. It'll be a, a help to you. You can do it in your language, in Hindi or Tamil, if you want to, or you can do it in English. So he said, I'll do it in English. And so he enrolled. And a few weeks later, I said to my wife, I haven't seen Thumbi smoking. She said, I haven't either. Not of late. So I said, Thumbi, you still smoking? Have you stopped? I haven't seen you smoking for some days. He said, no, I stopped. I said, why? Oh, he said, those lessons you gave me, I read in there that smoking was bad for my health, not good for my body, so I stopped smoking. And I was amazed because usually that lesson is well down in the list, not one of the first ones you do, one of the last ones in the course. And so I figured he must have been racing through these lesson studies. Well, we got transferred from uh, from, um, the city of Jabalpur to go up to Ruriki to take over the school. And I said to Tumbi, we're being moved up to Ruriki. It's about 600, 700 miles away, way up in the north of India. I said, um, we're happy with your work. If you'd like to come with us, there's accommodation up there. There's a service quarters up there where you can family can live. Uh, 
uh, you will have employment and I will pay the school fees for your children in the primary school up there, mission school. Uh, if you'd rather stay here with your friends and other family members, you make the choice. It's up to you. The offer is there if you want it. Well, apparently he talked over with his wife and he said, we'd like to go with you. Because if he stayed there, he'd have no job, you see. He had employment with us. And so he, we took him up there. We paid his train fare and all that for the family, took them up there with us and got them settled. And he used to come along to church, listen to the sermons, and when they had a week of prayer and a special week of spiritual emphasis, he went forward and made a consecration. So I invited them both, he and his wife, to get into um, a baptismal class. They studied in that class for about a year, and then Pastor D.K. Down came for a week of prayer the following year, and then he baptized them for us. The whole family became Christians, said they'd been as Christians, and um, all of them still faithful. The three sons have all worked, uh, got a good education, and their daughter uh, married a school principal. Uh, one of them became a pastor, and the other one became a school principal, and the third, younger one became a, a IT, a computer technology man, and they actually all, I think, living in the United States now. But that is the, one of the highlights of our work in India, the whole family of Hindu. Believe me, it's not easy to win a Hindu family to the Christian faith. They are very difficult to win. Peer pressure, family pressure, all make it difficult. Where did you go after India? After India, I went back to the United States and did another year of study at the Theological Seminary of Andrews University. When I did my MA, there was no Andrews University. Uh, the seminary was just on its own in Washington, D.C. Andrews University was formed while I was in India. So when the seminary joined up with the university and they moved it all up to Bering Springs in Michigan, so we went back to Michigan and uh, I did a year of further study there. What did you study in that year? More theology, yes. And uh, then we moved from there to New Zealand and went into pastoral work in North New Zealand Conference. How did you find New Zealand? Six. I mean, you, you had grown. You had I grew up, uh, many of my years of my childhood were in New Zealand, even though I'm an Australian by citizenship. My father was working there at the time. That's how we got to be there. And I married a New Zealand girl, so we went back to New Zealand. And uh, we uh, lived there for six and a half years until I was called to Avondale College to teach Bible. Did you work in Papua New Guinea at any time? Yes, I was in Papua New Guinea for 12 and a half years, uh, 1984 to 1961. Uh, no, that doesn't sound right, does it? <laughs> From the way, 1984 to 96. Uh, 96, <laughs> yeah, yes. that's, that's more like it. So yeah. what were you doing in Papua New Guinea? I was the chairman of the theology department at Pacific Adventist College, as it was in my day, but it now has a full university status granted by the Papua New Guinea government. So it's now called PAU for short, instead of PAC, Pacific Adventist University. And you were head of the theology department I was the there. first chairman of the theology department there. I was there for the opening, official opening, and when I left, I was the last of the original faculty members to leave. Tell me a little bit about your time in Papua New Guinea. I, uh, I used to, um, with my committee, organized practicals for students to go and do uh, practical training in the field each year 
doing about a six-week break in the middle of the year. It's what we called a practical training for them to go out into churches, ministerial students. And um, so I would arrange for them to go to various places, and then I and others of the teachers in the department would go and uh, check up on them, see how they're doing, and encourage them during the time. So I used the opportunity to send them to some places I wanted to visit, you see. A little bit of uh, strategy behind that. And so I got into 18 of the then 19 provinces of Papua New Guinea. So I saw a lot of the country. The only part of Papua New Guinea that I did not get to was what they call North Solomons, which is the island of Bougainville and some other islands around it, the Bougainville being the big island there. I did not get there. When were you in Hong Kong? After I retired in 1996, end of June, I came back to Australia fixed up my retirement uh, finances and so on, and then uh, flew off to Hong Kong to a volunteer job at uh, our college in Hong Kong, and I chaired their theology department for two school years. While I was there, I used the opportunity to go into mainland China six times. Went to Beijing twice, crossed the border to Shenzhen and Guangzhou twice, and uh, one another time went up to um, uh, Guilin and... Uh, uh, then took the, the uh, uh, another time to the Wuhan and took the ferry up the Yangtze River right up to Chongqing, way in the interior, middle of China almost. These are all quite different places, India, New Zealand, and um, where was the other Hong one? Hong Kong. Pa- Hong Kong, Papua yes, New Guinea, Papua quite, New Guinea. Different, quite different places. Born in Tonga, married in Canada, studied in the United States. I preached in... in in the Indonesia and in the Philippines and in uh, South Africa and Madagascar and uh, Kenya. Now, last year in Romania, Ukraine, Russia and Brazil. So you must start to feel a bit like a citizen of the world. Well, it's made me very international in my outlook in yes. life. I, um, yeah, I, I've been in about 71 countries and I've worked and preached in many of them. And um, I've enjoyed doing it. In retirement, I've been very active. And uh, I hope I can continue to do what I've been doing as long as God gives me the strength to do it. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Len about his approach to ministry and theology. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest is Pastor Leonard Tolhurst. 
Len has been telling us stories of his mission service in Fiji, India, Papua New Guinea and Hong Kong. In this part of the program, I'll be talking with Len about his approach to ministry and theology. Len, what was your motivation for ministry? I felt God's call to ministry when I was a high school lad. My father was a pastor, so at least I had a role model there that influenced me. And of course, being a regular church attendant, uh, attendee, I, uh, I guess, was influenced by uh, uh, several of the ministers that I was in contact with in those years. Uh, we attended camp meetings in North New Zealand Conference, and spiritual things was a matter of constant activity in our home and family and in my life. So it was no surprise that both my brother and I ended up in ministry, only the two of us. And um, I felt it was God's call. And uh, I've often reflected that if I had, uh, if I had uh, not responded positively to that call, that I would have had a massive guilt complex all my life. It would be uncomfortable to live with a guilt complex, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> so I, I made that commitment and stayed with it. Where did you do your ministerial training? I finished high school in 1948, and I went then to um, um, Longburn College in New Zealand, and I did my first year of study there. I did uh, nine subjects that year, which is almost uh, almost a double years, two years work in one. I did seven so, uh, classes in subjects in class, and two of them I did out of class and sat the exams and uh, got through them all right. That included Greek one. So when I came to Avondale College the next year, I only had six subjects left to finish the old ministerial course that was then in place. Uh, but I was only young, and I didn't feel mature enough to take up ministry I felt I needed a little bit more maturity. Uh, so I spread my time at Avondale finishing the ministerial course over two years and enrolled in the teacher training course as well. So that at the end of two years, I graduated from both ministry and teaching. What are the guiding principles that you've used in your um, ministry and mission service? Well, soul winning, of course, is always part of uh, a minister's uh, life. And also, not only the winning of souls, but the keeping of souls, the nurture of souls. It's one thing to win a person and baptize them, but then you have to nurture them and keep them because uh, we're in a spiritual warfare in this life. And uh, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean to say the devil leaves you alone. In fact, I think he redoubles his efforts to try and get you out of it. So our churches need nurture and support, and I've done a, a lot of that as well. How has ministry changed in your experience over the years? What changes have you noted? Uh, let me put it this way. There are many, many forms of religious life in this world, not only different Christian denominations, but non-Christian religions as well. And because of my experience, I have been in many countries where there are and worked among non-Christians, I guess I'm more tolerant than what some people used to be to people of other faiths. I I don't think it's right that we should down a person or rubbish their faith. 
that's between them and God. If we can share with them our faith and show them perhaps we've got something that uh, they don't have, that they might uh, be benefited by it, then that's the work of, of ministry. Um, there was a time when some uh, evangelist would down somebody else's faith to try and emphasize his own. Uh, I don't think that works because uh, people who are committed to faith love their faith, they love their church. But I believe God has those and knows those. In fact, the Bible tells us that God knows those that are his. And I believe that there are many, many sincere people in other Christian faiths and also in non-Christian faiths who are living to, up to the best knowledge, best light that they have, and that uh, they love God, and uh, God knows that they belong to him. What led you into teaching theology? I felt that not only did God call me to ministry, but that he called me to teaching. In Ephesians 4, we read that there are gifts of the Spirit that are given. Uh, some have got the gift of apostleship, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and so on. Uh, I, uh, I very strongly believe that of all the gifts that God's Spirit gives to us, that the gift that I got was the gift of teaching. And uh, I trained that way. And I've used it uh, not only in my pastoral work, uh, because pastoral work involves teaching. You're studying with people. You're explaining the scriptures to them. It's a form of teaching. But also I have um, uh, done nearly 30 years of uh, teaching in colleges, four colleges in all in my life. And uh, it's interesting to see where my students have ended up, some of them. What sort of changes have you seen, have you seen rather, in... Uh in ministerial training and theological education over the years? I think that, well, let me tell you an experience I had. When I came to teach at Avondale College, um, it was my first teaching appointment to actually teach uh, theology in a college. I taught in India, but uh, this was different. This was training ministers. I had only been there a few months and one of my theological students came to me one day and he said, Sir, your teaching is different from the teaching of some of the other lecturers we have here. I said, What makes you say that? He said, You are constantly telling us how to use the information you give us in the field. I said, Well, I've just come from the field. I know from my experience out there the questions that people are asking the needs that people have, the arguments that you can use to support what we believe, and uh, so on. And that's why I give you this emphasis this in class. Um, some of the other teachers had been somewhat limited in their field experience, and some of them had uh, been out of, out of field experience for many years. And so they'd become more academic and there's a danger, I think, in, study, in teaching of theology to concentrate on the academics rather than on the personal needs of the people. Theology uh, is good. I mean, I'm a theologian, and I, I spent many years studying it and teaching it. But if a knowledge of theology doesn't solve and help the people who have problems in their lives, it's not going to be the benefit that it should be to them. So make it practical. Bring it to the level where people can be benefited from it and build their own spiritual faith and their own trust and belief in God. 
Now, you have expertise in eschatology or end events. You've also studied biblical archaeology. I want you to just tell me briefly about these fields of study. We are going to spend quite a bit more time next week exploring some of these issues and some of your expertise, but just introduce these fields of study for us. First of all, last-day events. When I left India in 1961, I went back to the United States to do a further year of study. I met up with another pastor, Bible teacher, who was studying with me, who had been a missionary in Japan and uh, Korea, I think it was, and in uh, the Philippines. Uh, He had actually was caught by the Japanese in the Philippines during the war and spent several years in Japanese prisoner war camp. He was interested in last day events and he sort of whetted my appetite for the subject and we used to spend some considerable time together talking about things and that's what first got me going on trying to develop an understanding of events and their sequence and where they relate to each other and that has uh, developed and grown. When I came to New Zealand I was invited to give uh, take a uh, be a speaker at what they called a Bible camp for the young people now, the youth department of the church used to organize young people's camps, and they'd play volleyball and go water skiing or swimming during the day and have a worship talk in the morning and one at night, and that would be sort of it. This was different. This was Bible study in the morning, Bible study in the afternoon, Bible study in the evening. It was like a school session, Bible classes virtually all day. We'd maybe have half an hour, 45 minutes for a game of volleyball before the evening meal. Uh, Des Hills is a friend of mine, and uh, he spoke on First John. I decided to give a series of lectures on last-day events. So I prepared a little chart, only about uh, 18 inches by 12 inches, trying to outline some of the last-day events that I had been studying. And when he, Des Hills saw that, he said, you ought to get that uh, printed. I said, oh, I never thought about that. He said, no, no, he said, you should get it printed. So years later, I showed it to a young man that uh, had a Catholic background who uh, was interested in an Adventist girl who later became his wife. He's well known in this part of the the world here now, retired. But uh, he eventually became an Adventist pastor. I didn't know that he, by trade, was a, a draftsman. He said, can I borrow this little chart for a while? I said, okay. He took it away and he put it in that great big chart that you've seen on last day events, 76 topics on it. He said, I, I did this because I wanted a copy of it. Well, he could have photocopied what I gave him, but no, he said, laid it all out on this great big chart. It was a surprise to me. But anyway, he, uh, he gave it to, to me and uh, make a long story short, the, the Division Biblical Research Committee approved it for publication and asked the Science Publishing Company to print it. So far, we've printed 10,000 copies of it, and they're still selling. So in retirement, Memorial Church here in Kurumbong in New South Wales asked me to put on a series of lectures on Sabbath afternoons on last-day events. I gave them 18 lectures. I've added three more since then, 21 that I've been giving now. And I've been around Australia. 81 churches I've been in presenting these talks on last-day events, 21 subjects. Can't do it all in the weekend, so you go back to a church repeatedly, repeatedly. You know, you know, I've been to one church 12 times to give them the whole series for 21. 
Well, we're going to spend quite a bit more time on this whole area next week. Tell me about your experience in archaeology. I know that you did some initial study. Well, I studied under Dr. Siegfried Horn, uh, who's recognised uh, uh, in international and interdenominational circles as an outstanding archaeologist from North America. Actually, he's a German by race, and, uh, and, uh, but uh, became an American citizen after the war. And um, he taught archaeology at the uh, Seventh-day Adventist uh, Theological Seminary. So when I did my MA degree, I took archaeology and ancient history of Middle Eastern countries as my minor field. My major field was theology. My minor field was archaeology and ancient history. And uh, I got an insight into uh, archaeology in his classes. I studied under him for 12 months, four different uh, quarters. I studied under him. And um, years later, when I was working in Avondale College as a lecturer, uh, he, uh, with Andrews University, had been formed, and he took an Andrews University team with scholars from other ch denominations as well. It was not only Adventists. We had uh, Catholic and we uh, Church of England and uh, Lutheran and other churches there, uh, interdenominational, international team. I wrote to Dr. Horn and I said, I'd very much like to get some hands-on experience in archaeology. Uh, if I would uh, be able to come and join your dig, would uh, that be possible? He wrote back and said he'd be glad to have me and gave me the green light, come. So I applied to the college and on the third attempt, I was uh, granted leave to go and, uh, and actually blister my hands doing archaeological digging. That's how I got uh, into it. And um, I started at a, a, a tell three metres. Uh, now, this was in Jordan, wasn't it? It was in Jordan. Hezbon at Jordan? Hezbon in Jordan. They had dug there two seasons previously. I joined them for the third season. And I was given a, a brand new dig. Uh, three meters by three meters, because they wanted to check the layers, what they call the stratigraphy, of the earth there, to see how it related to what they had found on other areas on the on the hill, the tell. And so I started at ground level, went right down to bedrock in six weeks. Did you find anything significant? Right down in the bedrock at the bottom. Well, on the way we found a Roman coin. And we found lots and lots of pottery, of course, broken pottery. And uh, right down at the bottom, we found a water channel that flowed, flowed through it into a, an underground cistern, a big uh, stone uh, holding tank cut in bedrock, excavated out in bedrock, a mouth opening of about 18 inches across. So a person could climb down in to scrape out and dig out, make it bigger. And uh, that water channel... The pottery we collected underneath it was from the time of Christ. Very interesting. You were telling me about finding some early, early type of concrete. Yes. What was that about? On one of the big squares, I think it was five meters by five meters, they had dug down and came to what they thought was bedrock at the bottom. And then they saw a piece of pottery sticking out of bedrock. Well, pottery doesn't sort of stick into rock. So they checked it out, and it turned out to be some form of early concrete. So they said, this, this could be maybe the bottom of the pool of Heshbon, which is mentioned in the Song of Solomon in the Bible. 
And so they then cut a, a, a dig of one meter by one meter to see how thick it was. And it went down about 18 inches through three layers of concrete, three different layers of concrete. So they, some people now believe that that actually was the pool of Heshbon, part of the base of it, the bottom of the pool, that was laid with this concrete 18 inches thick. Where does biblical archaeology fit into the whole issue of the validity of the Bible? Well, I have not heard of anything that archaeology has found that uh, debunks the Bible. In fact, what uh, archaeologists have found is repeatedly the evidence of confirming the Bible, which is interesting, a historical confirmation, confirmation of biblical characters. Uh, For example, King Jehu is mentioned in the Syrian records. Uh, King uh, um, of uh, Judah, uh, Jehoiakim, I think it was, uh, is uh, mentioned in Babylonian records and um, in the the ration tablets uh, from the... um, Hanging Gardens in ancient Babylon. And one of the most outstanding examples of confirmation of, uh, of uh, history was the, the discovery of the Hittites. For many years, the only reference to Hittites that they could find in ancient history was from the Bible. I think about 13 references, or maybe more, to the Hittites found in the Bible. Uriah the first husband of uh, Bathsheba, who later became the wife of Solomon. She was married to a Hittite. Uriah was a Hittite. I think you meant the wife of David. The the wife of David, yeah. (laughs) The mother of... She she was the the mother mother of Solomon. That's right, yes. yes. Um, And um, so anyway, they were digging up in Turkey, a place called Bogoskoy, just out from Ankara, the capital. And they discovered uh, there some ancient writing. And when they were able to decipher it, they found out that was the headquarters of the Hittite Empire. There was a mighty empire that challenged Ramesses the Great. The king of Egypt fought a war against him, a war that Ramesses didn't win. But if you read what the Egyptians wrote about it, they claimed they won. If you read what the Hittites said about it, they claimed they won. So historians have sort of concluded maybe the battle was a draw. Nobody really knows uh, who won it and triumphs ultimately. But we now know the Hittites were a race of people, thoroughly documented in historical evidence because of archaeological work, confirming that the Bible... The Bible critics have said for years that the Bible was a myth. The talk about the Hittites was just a legend. No such race ever existed, but we now know that they did. Hmm. Next week when we come back for our second conversation we might be able to talk about a few more of these sorts of evidences and I certainly want to talk with you about uh, last day events and prophecy and where that fits into the whole Christian economy. But now as we close off our program today I wonder if you'd just like to offer a prayer for our listeners and offer a prayer generally today. Yes, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your love. We are not worthy of that love, we know, but you love them with with an everlasting love, and that love is revealed in the fact that Jesus came and died on the cross to save us. We pray that you will grant that all of us who listen to this program may make you their saviour 
by surrendering their lives to you and serving you according to the knowledge that you've given them. We pray that you'll bless all our radio listeners and their families and bless your people around the world. When Jesus comes to take us home, may we all have a place in that wonderful kingdom. I ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Len. It's been uh, wonderful talking with you today, listening to your stories. I really look forward to next week when we actually go into a little more depth into some of the fields of expertise that you have. And uh, I also want to look at your early life because you've got some amazing stories to tell about your early life and experiences. So we look forward to that next week. So thank you very much for the conversation today. Thank you. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Life Learnings. Remember to tune in again next time as I continue my conversation with Pastor Len Tolhurst. Bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.